So I think the most important thing I've ever noted about egg corns is not what we should call them, but the fact that we shouldn't be down on people who commit egg corns and think they're being ignorant. This week on the podcast, we discuss a term, a certain kind of mistake that has only been characterized within this millennium. I have the data as September 30th, 2003, to be exact, as the date when Jeff Pullum suggested the term egg corn for a certain kind of mistake. We start with a little discussion with Jeffrey Pullum himself, followed by a conversation with Paul Bryans about some of the acorns that show up in common errors in English usage. I'm here with Jeff Pollum. He's the author of, well, many things. He's the co-author of the Cambridge Grammar of English Language with Rodney Huddleston. He is the co-founder, along with Mark Liberman, of Language Log, and you'll find many of his posts there. Uh, I'm proud to say we are the publisher of a book he co-authored with Mark Liberman based on Language Log, Far From the Madding Gerund, and he also popularized the great Eskimo vocabulary hoax with his book of that title. Jeff, how are you today? Uh, just fine. Nice to talk to you, Tom. In spite of all of your those great accomplishments I just mentioned, one thing that you're very, very well known for and um, has entered the vernacular is a term, eggcorn, E-G-G-C-O-R-N. And that's what I want to ask you about today. Can you tell me how that started? Yeah, it's funny I should become known for coining this word. It seemed to me so obvious. And I've done much better word coinings than that. There's a technical term in astrophysics, which denotes the ratio of surface density in a cloud of particles to the rotation thereof. Uh, and I coined the term vortensity, and it actually shows up in the astrophysics literature. I'm proud of that one. But in the case of uh, eggcorns, I hardly discovered them. It was a friend of mine, Chris Potts, who pointed out to Mark Liberman and me that he had come across a case where a woman who was supposed to be writing the word acorn, A-C-O-R-N, wrote eggcorn, which, of course, with its E-G-G-C-O-R-N, sounds very similar. And it's as if her spelling it, writing it down for the first time, perhaps, for other people to see, had revealed that she had a kind of secret analysis of the word acorn. She thought it was referring to little things the shape of eggs that were kind of like kernels of corn, which in a sense is correct. And Mark realized that this is a new kind of linguistic error. It's not quite the same as a malapropism. Uh, that's named after Mrs. Malaprop in a play by Sheridan. And she just had wrong ideas about which words meant what. She would talk about an allegory on the banks of the Nile, thinking that she had referred to alligators thereby, because uh, she thought the word was allegory. And of course it isn't. And the humor of the play is that we know that. There's also on-the-fly versions of that, when you reach for a word, but you come out with the wrong one, it's a kind of slip of the tongue. You actually don't believe when you hear it played back that that's the word. But at the time, you came out with allegory instead of alligator by mistake. Uh, it's neither of those. And it's also, an acorn is also not 
like a Mondegreen. A Mondegreen is a nice name for uh, an error in auditory processing. It's entirely private. But when you hear certain lines, especially in songs or poems, you mishear them and think they've said something else. And this can ruin a song completely. Once you have realized that some people hear Percy Sledge singing, not when a man loves a woman, but when a man loves a walnut, you never hear the song the same way again. It's the same with hearing Jimi Hendrix singing, excuse me while I kiss the sky. Once you notice it sounds like, excuse me while I kiss this guy, you'll never hear that song the same way again. But this is entirely private. The thing about eggcorns is that you have a mistaken analysis of some word that composes it into parts or something like that. And that isn't revealed by anybody when you just talk to them and listen to them. Um, they hear what they think they heard and their brain represents what they think they heard. It's not until they write the word down that you realize they got the wrong end of the stick. They write acorn instead of acorn and suddenly you realize they got it wrong. It's also not really the same as a folk etymology. Lots of people hear the word asparagus and think that it's a corruption of sparrowgrass. And it isn't. It's nothing to do with sparrows and nothing to do with grass. They hear cockroach and they think it's a composition of cock and roach. It isn't. It's just a borrowing from cucaracha in Spanish. With acorns, they're kind of secret malapropisms that get revealed when you spell a word out and don't get revealed as long as you just engage in conversation. There are hundreds and hundreds of acorns, so many that there's a database online. If you look up acorn database, you will find that you can just browse hundreds and hundreds of them. And some of them are very funny and some of them only work in certain dialects. The people who think that um, those who talk about marsh pits are talking about marsh pits, obviously are British speakers, marsh and marsh sound very similar. The people who think that bouillon cubes are called bullion cubes obviously don't know French. People who talk about nipping it in the bud are talking about nipping it in the butt. Well, you can forgive them. I suppose that uh, they've missed the gardening analogy. If you cut the bud off, nothing's going to grow. Whereas nipping someone in the butt is merely going to alarm them or make them cry out. In all sorts of peculiar ways, people have revealed that they've got a different idea about the structure and meaning of certain words than most of us have. They're cute, but they shouldn't be mistaken for signs of ignorance. That's a rather important point. They're actually signs of active intelligence and knowledge of the language. You can't really be responsible for an acorn unless you know English perfectly well and can put two and two together. Sometimes you put two and two together and you accidentally make five. And when you spell out what you think the word is, people will realize and then you'll be a little bit embarrassed. But you shouldn't be too embarrassed because there's hardly must be hardly anybody who's never had 
any kind of acorn mistake in their linguistic behavior. There are just too many of them out there. No, and it's one of those things, yes, that's gone on forever and ever. And um, obviously, it's not a new thing. But putting a name on it is something of a new thing. And defining it in all of the ways that you defined it, that was a new thing. Yeah, all I did, though, was to say, well, if the very first case that Chris Potts noticed was a woman writing egg corn instead of acorn, why don't we call that kind of error an egg corn? And it just caught on instantly. It was a rare case of a wonderful, obvious name for something. But so obvious, it feels like to me like I did nothing. I look uh, at Chris Potts's interesting observation and I looked at Mark Liberman's plea. Could we find a name for this kind of error? It seems to be different from other kinds of error. And it just fell on me. I don't feel that I deserve any credit. I didn't do a whole lot of head scratching, not even for a quarter of an hour. It just seemed instantly clear what the uh, obvious name should be. I suppose there aren't that many words that really catch on that come about in that way. One person just sees that's what we should call it. And then everybody agrees and it takes off completely. But nobody's ever questioned it. Nobody's ever called egg corns anything else. No. And I think it's a testament to what the Internet can do for you. And it's no coincidence. I don't think that this uh, phrase caught on at a time when the language log blog was catching on in a big way. Lots of readers and lots of very sophisticated readers, uh, linguists yeah. uh, who, who could pass this thing around. And That's right. In, when I was first introduced to the idea of group science blogs in 2003, Mark Liberman actually had to explain to me what they were. Uh, I'd heard about blogging software. I didn't know that there were any groups of scientists running blogs to which several people contributed uh, on specific topics. And he suggested it was Mark's original idea that uh, we should just load some blogging software on a server and try writing about linguistics for a wider public. And uh, I immediately saw the possibilities. Uh, he was the one who set the server up and loaded the software and wrote the first test posts. But I jumped in immediately and started writing pieces for it. And soon it was just a most natural and obvious thing. You get up in the morning and the first observation about language that's occurred to you, probably before you even got out of bed, just write a few hundred words about it, uh, maybe lightheartedly and having lots of fun, and then get on with your day's work. Um, before long, we had thousands of posts I have no idea how many Mark has done, but it must be seven or eight thousand posts minimum, might be ten thousand. I can only say that I know I've done between one and two thousand. Um, it just became part of our lives. And in 2003, it was brand new. Now everybody has a blog. Well, sure. Yes. And uh, the post blogging world is, of course, your Twitter account. Um, reducing the number of words required to uh, quite a few less. Yeah. Actually, we count characters now. We no longer count words. I'm incapable of uh, running a Twitter account, I think, because I just cannot uh, squeeze things down to 140 characters. Uh, 
my experience is trying to write for the Lingua Franca blog on the Chronicle of Higher Education site that what they really want is posts that are not too much longer than about 500 words. And I treat that as meaning anything up to 800. Above 800, I'd be pushing it. So when I have an idea, I think I'll just write 100 words or so about this and see how it looks. It'll probably uh, be quite short. And I type away for less than an hour uh, thinking and writing as I go. And I have a look and it's always like a thousand words. And I then spend two days whittling it back to something more like 750 before publishing it. Because I don't feel I should go on and on and on. But the idea of whittling it down, whittling anything down to 140 characters is beyond me. I don't know how Steven Pinker does it, but I know a lot of weird missing words and abbreviations and so on. You really have to compress language beyond what I'm capable of to write 140 characters uh, to give just a couple of examples would use up all the space you've got. So it's blogging for me and it won't be microblogging. I can't see a use for a Twitter account. They're useful for attracting abuse, I believe, but that's mainly with women and celebrities. <laughs> I'm neither of those, so... No, and I think what happens is uh, a lot of what, to put it in the most generous terms, uh, I believe Twitter is most useful, for me anyway, as a place to find links to uh, longer pieces, something that you may have written, for example, <laughs> that's lengthier and you can really sink your teeth into more. Uh, 140 characters doesn't really do much. Steve Pinker sees the purpose of his Twitter account as just a way to tip people like you off on things they might like to read. Just letting intelligent friends know uh, here's something you should look at. And that's useful, but you can't get in a, a single opinion or even a tiny little presentation of one case, you know. I mean, let me just give one more nice example of an eggcorn. There are people who have apparently written um, for phrases like the familiar saying, in the midst of life, we are in death. And they write, in the midst of, instead of midst, they miss that D. What of course, in the midst of life, that's perfect. You just see this fog around you. You really don't know what's going to happen. For all of us, we can't see the future. It is a bit like living in a mist. Mm -hmm. That's not an ignorant slip, a silly mistake. That's a kind of poetic vision of what the person thought they heard. And it's very beautiful. So I think the most important thing I've ever noted about eggcorns is not what we should call them, but the fact that we shouldn't be down on people who commit eggcorns and think they're being ignorant. They're generally showing intelligence, command of English, and quite often a certain poetic imagination. And the things they accidentally come up with are really cute. Well, it's not always uh, very poetic either. I'm thinking of uh, it's typically thought that the original expression is buck naked. And isn't butt naked, B-U-T-T, -T, just a little bit uh, snappier? <laughs> I don't know which one to prefer. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that I have a preference, but uh, once again, it's it's quite descriptive, maybe more descriptive than you want, but uh, <laughs> it's a very logical and thought out error. I'll just put it that way. Uh, I doubt if it's explicitly thought out. People just think that's what they were hearing and uh, unconsciously 
they analyze the phrase and think they know which parts it's got. And as soon as they write down what they think its spelling would therefore be, you see what their mistake of analysis was. But I doubt that many of these are at all conscious. That would be a real mistake to imagine that people are making them up consciously. They really are a strange kind of error in analysis of what you think you heard. So they're definitely errors, but that doesn't mean they're ignorant. No, no. Well, we'll finish on that note. Um, and thank you, Jeff, for defining the term for us very clearly, what it is and what it is not, and how this kind of error is different from other things that have been noted before. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Talk again soon. Sure. I hope so. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, I just finished a conversation with Jeff Pullum about acorns, a certain kind of error. Uh, he described what they were, and I think everybody is pretty well primed to hear some of the examples that you came up with in your book. And the first one that I was going to ask you about this morning was um, cut of tea and cup of tea. This is an interesting slip between the P sound and the T sound, which is not all that uncommon. Yeah, a lot of these come to me because people send them to me and say, can you believe somebody just did this? And then I have to check and see if it's fairly common. This was one that really surprised me. Uh, cut of tea. It's not my cup of tea. And I suppose it would make kind of sense, and that's what makes an egg corn, uh, that tea is, in fact, cut different ways. So there's there's gunpowder tea, and then there's, you know, whole leaves, and uh, it's chopped in various ways. So you could say, you know, there's different cuts of tea, but uh, the expression is about a cup of tea. It's a little less sophisticated than cut of tea. Yeah. Most people are not even that familiar with different cuts of tea, except maybe now we're, we're getting a little more sophisticated in our understanding of things like that. Well, it reminded me of the expression, uh, like the cut of his jib. And I don't damn know if that's common enough now to have influenced cut of tea, but it's sort of related. Mm -hmm. Well, nevertheless, the correct expression or the original expression is cup of tea. Right. Very simple. Not my cup of tea. Uh, another good one that I like because it makes great sense. Uh, the error makes great sense. And like you said, this is part of what makes an acorn. Uh, the expression lip sing, yes. which is not the correct one, but it's obviously it should be lip sync. S-Y-N-C or S-Y-N-C-H. Yeah, when there's a recording and you're having the movements of your lips uh, synchronized to the pre-recorded sound. Um, I've been experiencing this lately because I bought this recent Blu-ray disc of the Beatles videos, which is really amazing. Um, the super high fidelity. It's being re-engineered and uh, the recordings are astounding. But the Beatles almost never recorded themselves singing on video live. Almost all of their uh, videos were lip synced. And uh, they got in trouble because the performers union in Great Britain uh, ruled that stations should not broadcast 
uh, lip syncing performers because they thought that would do is cut down on the number of jobs that people got if, if somebody else other than the performer were doing. Of course, the Beatles were lip syncing to themselves, but that's what stopped them ultimately from doing many more of these things because they got these protests from the union. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. Yeah. And the SYNC spelling is pretty dominant today. If you see older spellings, it's usually SYNCH. Yes, I guess that's another one that uh, you can fiddle with. But if you decide that it's SYNC rather than SYNCH, which I guess is a little more old fashioned, that's the one I tend to prefer. But. Uh, if you have one, you just stick with it. Right. Oh, one other thing that um, I've been interested in is Bollywood movies. And uh, most movies made in India are musicals. Um, they Even if they're a serious drama, they'll probably have a few songs in them. But the singing is almost always done by what they call playback artists. And they do the singing, and there are two women who are sisters who have done the vast majority of Bollywood musicals, or at least famous ones. Uh, it's just amazing. So the relationship between the actor and the singer is um, totally based on lip-syncing on the part of the actor. Right, yeah. And, of course, just movies in general, it, it's probably more rare than it is common, actually, that a scene will be recorded just live and the sound that is captured while filming the movie uh, is actually the voice that's actually used in the final production that you hear. Well, Federico Fellini was famous for sometimes just having his actors say any old thing and then or then writing the dialogue <laughs> having them speak it <laughs> as they were the opposite of lip syncing in that case. And you, you look at the Fellini movies, and so often the lips aren't really synced at all with what the speech is doing. If you know the Italian, of course, if you're focusing on the subtitles, you wouldn't notice that. No, and of course, I'm not an Italian speaker, so I hadn't noticed that. Oh, that's very interesting. So even if you're watching the movie with the original soundtrack in Italian, it still could look like it's overdubbed. Yeah, and he would actually change the content of the scene, you know, just, oh, here's some of these two people talking. I want want them to say something else. Yeah, well, uh, captioning a cartoon, I guess. Uh, Speaking of cartoons, I have one for the next one. Uh, My cartoon says, uh, hoeing a row is difficult enough. Don't even try to hoe a road. Right, although we live on a dirt road. (laughs) With weeds growing along the sides of it. But, um, yeah, tough road to hoe. Um, very few people are out doing handwork in, in gardens in the old-fashioned way of going down a row of peas or cabbages or whatever and using a hoe to, to cut them with. So I think people have kind of lost touch with that agricultural root. Um, even if they grow a few vegetables in their back garden, they usually pull up the weeds by hand. So, yeah, and it's, you know, hard road to travel, I think, is what people have in mind, and they're getting that mixed up with uh, tough road to hoe. And, of course, they sound almost identical, I guess, when you sound them out. Right, because the DT blends together road to, you you wind up making just one sound. Well, here's another one that I'm sure you you, uh, must have had a chuckle over when you discovered it, and that was the dog-eat-dog world. Yeah, yeah. And it's a doggy dog world. Doggy dog world, yeah. 
It's a doggy dog world. Well, a doggy dog world might be kind of nice, kind of a playful place, but it's not a doggy dog world, is it? Unfortunately, a dog eat dog. And I actually just looked at a a page where people were discussing: Do dogs really eat other dogs? And people were saying, "Oh yeah, I had this mean dog that chewed off my other dog's leg." And so evidently, it can happen. I don't think terribly common. Uh, certainly, they all attack each other, or they actually consume each other. It's not a matter. But a dog-eat-dog world is a miserable world in which everybody's just out for themselves and doing damage to other people. And I don't think that this doggy spelling was very common until Snoop Doggy Dog doesn't use that anymore. But the rap artists use the name, and, and it just spread like crazy. And this happens often when people make a pun where they change an expression to do something cute with it, and then that gets more famous than the original expression and causes confusion. Mm-hmm. I think the next one is really interesting. We could spend a little bit of time talking about duct tape and duck tape, which it's actually not even that certain which is the original, is it? Well, it seems to be the original is duct tape, D-U-C-K. Yeah, why would that be? <laughs> that was because it was uh, made of a kind of linen or cotton, which is called duck. It's used for nautical purposes especially. And it got changed, and I'm not clear why, to duct tape. And that's considered standard now. But the problem with it is that people think, oh, this is what I should tape my ducts together with. But if you talk to a building inspector or a plumber or a heating expert, they'll say, do not use duct tape. It doesn't hold up to the heat. You don't want to use that for sealing ducts. Um, It's good for plenty of other things. Some people think very highly of it for removing warts, for instance. Right. Yeah. Great wart remover. There's now a company which uh, produces one. They've gone back to the original name, duct tape. So, it's one of those that makes your head spin. What are you going to say is, quote, correct? Well, you have to know the context. You're speaking historically, you're talking about the brand name. But for most purposes, most of the time these days, even though logically it doesn't make a lot of sense, it's D-U-C-T tape. And I remember reading William Sapphire writing about this one, saying that uh, the D-U-C-K duck tape, originally that's what they used to seal up uh, ammo cases in the military to keep the water out. Right. It's waterproof, exactly. Yeah. And that's what the duck linen was, too. It's a waterproof fabric. I would not consider any conversation about acorns complete if we didn't talk about uh, tenter hooks and tender hooks. Very different, right? Yes. Well, you know what a tent is, right? It's it's a canvas stretched between poles, and the canvas that a painter works with has to be stretched. And one thing you can stretch it with are, are tenter hooks. Uh, they're just these hooks that would grasp the canvas and stretch it taut. Um, so that's the point. And to be on tenter hooks is to be tense with anticipation. So you're you're really anxious to find something out. So you, you feel like you're a stretched canvas. Uh, to be tender hooks, that just doesn't make sense to me at all because there's nothing tender about a situation of being on tender hooks unless you just ask somebody, would you please marry me? And 
tenderly and tenderly. <laughs> yeah, I think the juxtaposition of tender and hook may be the thing that just the, it, it sounds a little poetic or a little odd or just strange enough. Uh, the juxtaposition of those two words that people may fall into thinking that that was somehow the way it goes. I suppose Captain Hook could come alongside your ship in a tender. Yes, right. right. And as our trout says in, in the cartoon, there is no such thing as a tender hook. That's the first thing you learn in trout school. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Let's just do a couple more, and people, I think, get the point. Now, uh, we heard Jeff Pullum talk in the introduction about nip it in the butt and nip it in the bud and how that one could work. I like this one, um, and there's a few to choose from, but I really like this one, voluptuous and voluptuous. Yes, I never knew uh, for sure, and I still don't know, when somebody uses voluptuous, whether they're literally punning and joking. Uh, if they refer to themselves as voluptuous, sometimes it's a sort of self-denigrating joke. But some people actually think that's the way it's spelled. So it could be a mistake. It could be a pun. Um, but voluptuous comes from the Latin voluptas, which has to do with sensual pleasure. And it doesn't describe the shape, but the feelings that the shape inspires. So um, we talk about a voluptuous woman uh, could be, you know, very curvy, but she could also just be very exciting, very lovely to look at and attractive. Um, and then we often transfer it to things like foods, you know, and there are other voluptuous things which brings us back to the latin root voluptus but it's not does not refer to you having a lot of lumps in your body so voluptuous is just really funny if you want to be funny go ahead if you don't mean to be funny then don't use that spelling well i guess there's the lump part and then there's the volume part right taking up a little more volume uh with all those curves which it really is the way most people go with voluptuous, although that's true, uh, given the meaning of it, it doesn't necessarily have to be curvy. Well, uh, Paul, this has been great. Thanks for going over some of these, and uh, maybe sometime we'll we'll do a few more of these. Uh, some of them have a little bit more to talk about than just the phenomenon of how they get mistaken uh, one way or the other. They can go a little deeper than that, but... Um, I think that's a good rundown on what's an acorn, what are some examples of acorns, and your take on it. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tom. Bye. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.